Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. By the way, if you're interested in reading scripture, it's one of the ways we try to get you involved in the service on the stage. Uh, if you're interested or your kiddo's interested, uh, talk to Zach after the service, and we'd love to have him up here. Uh, I would recommend they don't read in a couple weeks Nehemiah 3 because it's a whole bunch of <laughs> Hebrew names. Uh, but if we have a kid doing it, I, I try to simplify it for him. So uh, if, you, if you say, man, that'd be cool to have my kid up there involved in the service, we think so too. And uh, we'd love to, to get you involved with that. If you have your Bibles, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we are. Uh, For the second week, we are in the book of Nehemiah. And we're taking kind of a different approach to Nehemiah than uh, most people would take to Nehemiah. And it's really the way I think you ought to read the Old Testament stories. And that is not looking for morals or things that you can do for yourself, tips and tricks about life, but looking at how the, the people in the story actually points forward to Jesus and what he does for us. This is written some 400 to 500 years before Jesus walked on the earth. And what we see in Nehemiah is a character or a picture, a a pointer, if you will, of Jesus who will come and be the better Nehemiah doing the things that Nehemiah did, but doing them better in in a fulfilled way. And uh, it's really powerful when you read the scriptures this way. But if you're anything like me, I naturally go towards principles and practical things for myself. Like when I initially read this text, the first thing I wanted to preach that just kind of came natural to me was, well, how ought we to pray? You know, here's Nehemiah's prayer. How should my prayers match up with Nehemiah's prayers? And that's a fine way to preach this sermon. And if you search Nehemiah chapter one, you'll find many sermons doing that. But ultimately, what I want us to look at instead is how Nehemiah's prayer, how Nehemiah's interceding for the people of Israel points forward to Jesus and his intercession for us. And so let me first, before we actually get into the sermon, I'm going to kind of back up a little bit and uh, talk about why it is important to look at Jesus this way and to look at the scriptures this way as pointing us towards Jesus. Because often what it can do is reveal something about my heart. If I am only interested in learning practical tips and tricks from the Bible, If I'm only interested in getting a couple morals and I come and I hear doctrine about Jesus or theology about Jesus and I'm kind of bored, that reveals something to me. That might mean that I view Jesus kind of as a machine and he's supposed to just give me what I want and tell me how to make life easier. And if he's not doing that, then I don't really care for him. See, a lot of us treat Jesus like I treat my washing machine. I don't like my washing machine. except for when it's washing my clothes, right? Like I have no affections for for my washing machine. I'm not going in there and grabbing the washing machine manual and going, whoa, this thing is awesome, you know? And if you do, you're a nerd. It's strange to do that. All I care about is my washing machine washing my clothes. And if it stops washing my clothes, guess what? I'm going to kick it to the curb without giving it a second thought. Now, a lot of us treat Jesus that way. Ah, Boring, 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 boring. Okay, this helped my life a little bit right now, so I'll just look at this part of the Scripture. Or, or, you know, Jesus isn't helping me, so I'll go to Buddha, or I'll go to Oprah, or I'll go somewhere else, because I just need help. I need need practical tips and tricks. And I don't care if it's Jesus or somebody else. We're viewing Jesus as a machine. It's vastly different than the way we ought to view Jesus, because Jesus is primarily a relationship. Uh, to be a Christian is to have affection for Jesus, to love Jesus. You know, you might not have all the theology right, but you love Jesus. That's the whole point of the Christian faith. Well, we ought to love Jesus a lot more like I love my wife rather than I love my washing machine. You know, I'm interested in my wife and in the details that I normally wouldn't be interested in. Like I sit down sometimes and I'll watch The Bachelor with Taylor. 
Now, I personally do not care to watch The Bachelor, and often I don't watch it with them because I can't keep my mouth shut. Like, I just, I think it's stupid, and I say it's stupid, and, and Jordan and Taylor get annoyed at me. So I, but, but I sit in there sometimes, and it's not because I love The Bachelor. It's because I love Taylor. I want to be with Taylor. And uh, if you've ever been in a relationship or you're married, think back to the beginning of the relationship. At the very beginning of the relationship, you were so interested in that person. You know, what's your favorite color? What do you like to eat? What's your favorite dessert? Now, those things mean nothing unless you love the person. And in fact, I think that's why a lot of marriages kind of grow cold because we stop caring. We stop being interested and we start to kind of just use our spouse. And can you imagine if I treated Taylor like I treat my washing machine? You know, just imagine with me, Taylor comes home and she begins to tell me about her day. And she says, Blake, something really exciting happened to me today. And she begins and I go, Taylor, just stop talking. Really, all I want from you is to do the dishes, to make me dinner and to be quiet. And maybe when I'm ready, you could give me some kisses and cuddles. Now, my wife looks very sweet and she is very sweet. But I can guarantee you if I did that, she would punch me in the throat. It would not go well. And what I know would not happen is there would be no kisses or cuddles for me. Because you would look at my marriage if I did that and you would say, Blake, something is wrong. You're just using your wife like she's a machine. You don't actually love your wife. And I'm afraid many of us treat Jesus that way. And so my goal today is that it would stir affections for your heart. When we look at these things that Jesus is doing for us, and you might say, well, how does that practically help me on Monday? It's like, well, I do think it is practical. It gives you encouragement and confidence, but it doesn't always have to be practical. Sometimes it's just, I love Jesus, and it's so cool to see what he's done for me in this new way. Now, with that said, we are entering into one of the most beautiful doctrines, one of the most beautiful things that Jesus Christ does for us, and it's not talked about very often. I was surprised by the the amount of sermons that are not preached about this, the, the lack of articles on this subject, and that is the intercession of Christ for us. Now, the word intercession, uh, it's actually an action, and it means to intercede or to uh, help somebody on their behalf. So you're talking to somebody else on the behalf of the other person. Uh, Give you an example of this. I needed intercession in my own life uh, one time when I got a a ticket. It was actually one of the most terrifying things in my life. Uh, I was, it was 2016 or so, and uh, I was driving on Sharon Shattuck Road, and they got that stupid stop sign there that's, that's really dumb. It should be a yield sign. I mean, nobody's ever driving on that road. And it was late at night, and I was tired, and we were coming home from Shattuck to Woodward. It was Taylor and I. And as I'm driving, there's a car behind me, but I don't think much about it. And I'm driving, and, and I think, you know what? No cop, no stop. You know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down. Nobody's coming. I'm just going to roll on through this stop sign. And so that's exactly what I did. Well, my luck is that the only other car on the road, the car behind me, I didn't think much about. As soon as I rolled through that stop sign, guess what happened? Lights came on. It was a police officer. He pulled me over and he gave me a ticket. I was busted. You know, there was no way out of it. I said, oh, man, I took, the, took, took it uh, like a man, took the ticket, and I drove on. I didn't think anything about it until on Monday I got a letter in the mail telling me that I needed to turn myself into the jail because there was a warrant out for my arrest. Now, you see, what had happened was the cop, when he was coding it on his little computer thing, he accidentally didn't put running stop sign. He put manslaughter. (laughs) Now, manslaughter is a much, much higher crime than running a stop sign. So you can imagine my fear, my panic in this moment. And I had no authority to change this on my own. And I'm thinking, man, if I leave the house, I'm going to get arrested. And and I can't go to jail. I mean, look at me. I wouldn't survive in jail very well. And and so 
I needed somebody to intercede, somebody who had influence to change it for me. And lucky for me, my grandmother, Wendy, was somebody who could intercede for me. Now, at night, my grandma is a superhero. But by day, her job is to be a county clerk. And so she knows everybody in Woodward. If you're in law enforcement, if you do anything in Woodward, you know my grandmother, Wendy. And uh, she has influence with everybody. Everybody loves Wendy. And so it was the coolest thing ever. I said, Grandma, look at this problem I have. And she said, I'll take care of it. And by noon of that day, it was taken care of. Now, that wasn't anything I did. It was my grandma interceding on my behalf. She said, I'll go and take care of this because you don't have the influence that I have. It's the same reason why we take people to court when they don't pay something or they do something to us. We don't have the authority to get it done, but we can take it to a judge. And under the influence of the law, the judge does have the authority to change things for us. And this is what Jesus does for us in the throne room of God. He intercedes on our behalf. This is what Romans 8, 33 and 34 says. It says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. I think that's interesting. It's kind of cool to think about what is Jesus doing right now? Have you ever thought about that? Where is Jesus and what is he doing? Well, where he is, is he's right next to God on a throne and he's praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf. He's asking God for things for you that you could not ask for for yourself. But because of the influence of Jesus, it is granted to you. And God never rejects a prayer of Jesus because God the Father and God the Son are of one mind, of one will, and of one accord. That's really cool and encouraging to me to know that Jesus right now is seated next to God. And as a follower of Christ, he is using his influence at me as a follower of Christ, him as Christ. He's using his influence for me and for my good. That's really powerful. Now, you might say, well, what is Jesus exactly praying for? You know, what is he interceding on my behalf for? And we're going to get to that. At the end of this sermon, I'm going to give you three things that Jesus is interceding on your behalf for. But first, we're going to go to Nehemiah and we're going to look at the source of the influence. What gives Jesus influence to say anything at all? A better question is what gives Nehemiah influence? You know, he's just a guy. Well, what gives you and I any kind of influence to pray to God? Have you ever thought about how nuts that is? When you say you're going to pray for somebody and you actually believe the God of this universe is going to listen to you. I mean, how audacious. What gives you any kind of credibility to say you can influence the God of this universe? That's a good question. And I'm glad you asked it because I wrote my whole sermon about it. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to intercede for us. And what I want you to do while I'm praying is if you could pray for me, intercede, go to the throne room of God and say, God, help this knucklehead preach. Because if you don't help him, we're not going to hear a very good message. And that is very true. Now, come with me. Father God, thank you so much that through the intercession of Christ, I can come boldly to your throne. And I can ask for things. And I can believe and know that you do hear them. Lord, the influence that I have is only based upon the influence that Jesus has earned for me through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. God, my my prayer today is that affections would be stirred for Jesus, that we would see Jesus a little bit more clearly today so that we might love him a little bit more deeper today. God, I pray that you would stir the hearts of people maybe who have a cold idea of what religion is and it would stir them to the relationship that they can have with you. Father, we love you and we thank you. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1 Uh, Verse 5 is where we're going to start. If you remember last week, Nehemiah, 
who is the cupbearer to the king, uh, hundreds of miles away from the people in Jerusalem who are rebuilding, gets a report from his brother. His brother goes and checks it out and he comes back and he says, Nehemiah, the walls are still down. The city has still been burned. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart. He's given a a passion for this. And uh, so Nehemiah uh, does what you do when you get a passion from God. He drops to his knees and he begins to pray and he begins to fast. And as we come into verse 5, we see Nehemiah's prayer. And it's really interesting because we see Nehemiah interceding on behalf of God's people in two different throne rooms, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Talk about chapter 2 next week in a different light. But in chapter 2, he's going to go before the king and he's going to say, here are some things I want for God's people. Now he can do that because he has influence as the king's cupbearer. But Nehemiah knows which throne is more important. See, before I go to any earthly throne room, I need to first go to the heavenly throne room. Before I intercede on the behalf of the people before King Artaxerxes, I've got to intercede on the behalf of the one true king, God the Father, in the heavenly realm. And so we get an insight here of Nehemiah's intercession for the people. Now it says this, verse 5. I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. So this is where Nehemiah's influence comes from. His influence, the reason why he thinks God would listen to him and do anything for him is because God has made a promise to the people. And Nehemiah is saying, God, you're going to keep your promise. And that's why I know that you're going to listen to me. That's what gives me any hope for influence. The the promise that God made in the Old Testament was a covenant promise of if you guys do this, then I will do this. Uh, It it is a gracious covenant, but it was based upon the works of God's people. In other words, if, if they started worshiping idols, if they were unfaithful to God, God would not be faithful to them. Now, it was a gracious covenant because God gave these knuckleheads second chance after second chance after second chance. God said, if you go away from me, I will remove my power from you. But you have unlimited second chances. If you will repent and turn back to me, I will always be there for you. I hear the cries of my people. Now, Nehemiah goes on, verse 6. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer, that I now pray to you day and night for your servants. I love that. Nehemiah says, I'm only going to pray to God on the days that end with why. I'm only going to do it day and night, all the time, interceding for God's people. For your servants, the Israelites. And then he goes into confession. And this is important because this is a part of the covenant. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. That's our only hope, that you remember the promise you made. Our hope is not in ourselves because we're kind of goofy. We mess things up. Our only hope is that you keep the promise you made, God. If you are unfaithful, this is the promise God made to Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And that's exactly what happened. That's what got the Israelites in this mess. For hundreds of years, God was merciful to the people of God as they continued to be unfaithful to Him. They worshipped idols. They thought God's Word was something that really didn't matter that much. And here's the funny thing that happens. When we go away from God's wisdom, we always end up in bad places. You know why? Because although we think we are wise, we are fools if we go against what God's will is. And that's exactly what happens to the Israelites. They wind up in slavery with Jerusalem destroyed. Now you might think this is an act of God's wrath to allow this to happen, but really it was an act of grace. God allowed them to undergo this so that they would be drawn back to Him. He wanted them to understand what idols do for you, which is nothing. 
You know, if you're going to place your hope in all of these idols and all of these comforts, well, that's fine. We'll see how powerful they are when these powerful kingdoms come in and roll you over. And that's exactly what happens. But God is merciful. And he said, after 50 or so years, I'll raise up leaders and I'll bring you back to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what we have happening here with Nehemiah. It says, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But here's the other side of the covenant. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. That place is Jerusalem. Now, this is important because if we go back to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 through 15, before the exile, here's God and what he is saying to the people. It's again, he's reminding them of their covenant, of the covenant he has with them. Verse 13, if I shut the sky, I being God, so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people and my people who bear my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face. What has Nehemiah done? He humbled himself. He's coming. He's confessing not only the sins of Israel, but he's saying, I am a sinner. He's praying for the people and he's seeking the face of God. And it says this and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. And then look at verse 15. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to the prayer from this place, which is exactly what Nehemiah prayed for in verse six. Remember, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night. Nehemiah's hope is the covenant that God has made with his people. And a lot of people actually today will use this verse, Second Chronicles chapter seven, to say this is what America needs to do. We need to repent and we need to pray and God will heal our land. Actually, though, the covenant God has made with us as New Testament Christians is far better than what Second Chronicles chapter 7 says. I don't want Second Chronicles chapter 7 when I look at the covenant that Jesus has made for us. This is Old Testament for the people of Israel. Jesus comes with a far better covenant. The reason for Jesus' influence and the reason why I think I have influence with God is because of the new and the better covenant that Jesus has with God. And we see a taste of this in John chapter 1 in the New Testament. Hundreds of years later, John chapter 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the first covenant was a covenant of law. When I ran that stop sign, there was no doubting whether I was in trouble or not. It was pretty black and white. It was clear. I did it, so I deserved the punishment. But under the new covenant, we get grace. That word grace means undeserved favor means I get something that I did not deserve for myself. Somebody else earned it. It's the difference in working for your money and getting an inheritance. Uh, If you work for your money, that's your money. You earned it. You deserved it. But some of us have been blessed to get an inheritance. Some of you are, are blessed enough to leave an inheritance for your children. Now, a guy who has an inheritance who is a millionaire can't stand up and say, look at me, I'm a millionaire. Let me give you advice on how to be a millionaire. You can't tell us anything. Your dad was a millionaire or your mom was a millionaire. You got that inherited to you. That is grace, undeserved riches, undeserved favor. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us. It's what theologians call the great exchange. Jesus comes and he lives a perfect, righteous life. Didn't mess up a single time. All the righteousness that can be earned in this life was earned by Jesus Christ. And he goes to the cross and he pays the penalty that sinners are supposed to pay. The penalty for my sin is death. The the gift of righteousness is life. So why is the one who is perfectly righteous the one who died? 
so that the one who is not perfectly righteous, namely this guy speaking to you right now, could have Christ's righteousness and have eternal life based upon what Jesus did. That is good news. Some of you don't look like it's good news. I feel like I'm talking to a a librarian convention right now. I mean, if there was a place for an amen, that was the place, man. Jesus earned this for us. Now, there's the theology of justification, which is how are we justified before God? And uh, I've heard it said this way, and it's a good way to remember it, but it's not complete. People will say justified uh, means just as if I had never sinned. Just as if I had never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. That God looks at Jesus' sin and he doesn't see my sin. And that is true. But that is incomplete. It is true that Jesus paid for every penalty of my sin on the cross. All of it gone. But, but if we think about it in financial terms, which is the way I think it's very easy to think about it, is it'd be like if you had a billion dollar debt. I mean, just some outrageous amount you could never ever pay. There'd just be no hope for you to pay it. You couldn't mow enough lawns to get the debt paid. And a billionaire came and he paid off your debt. Now that would be great. But guess what? You'd still be broke. You would no longer be a billion dollars in debt, but you'd have zero dollars. What Jesus does is he comes and does something way more fantastic than that. It's like the billionaire comes and pays off your debt. But then not only that, he gives a billion dollars to your account. You go from being a billion in debt to a billionaire. And that is exactly what Jesus does for us. That's why the theologians call it the great exchange. I am seated in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms. I am seen as Christ Jesus. All of the righteousness that Jesus earned is now upon me. It tells me in the future when Jesus comes back, I will get to sit on a throne and rule over angels. Are you serious? Does that even make sense to you? Because it doesn't to me. I don't deserve that. And that's the whole point. This covenant is a covenant of grace. Not just grace, grace and truth. It doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. No, it means we've been given a new passion, a new desire. I want to live the right way. I want to desire the things of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is in me and He convicts me when I walk away from truth. Because I love Jesus and it hurts the Jesus that I love. See, this is the basis of the interceding. The basis of the interceding for Nehemiah was the old covenant. The basis for the interceding of Jesus is the new covenant. Why does God listen to Jesus? You know Why? Because of his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He has earned his place of authority. That's exactly what Paul said in the the verse I read to you at the beginning. He says, he is the one who lived, he is the one who died, and even more so, he is the one who raised. And that's really the important part, because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, none of us would be talking about him. There have been a lot of moral teachers who have talked and said really cool things, but when they die, they're dead, and none of us worship them. But Jesus is not dead. You cannot find him in a grave anywhere you look. And you know why you can't? Because he's not there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in his rightful place of authority. Now, with the remainder of our time, I want to look at three ways that Jesus intercedes for us. What what is he praying over? How, How does Jesus use his influence to help us in things we have no influence or authority over? And the first thing, and we could do this, I mean, I could do a whole series on all of this, but I just chose three things that made me the most excited, and I'm the one with the microphone, so I get to do that. The first one is he gives us power over our afflictions. He gives us power over our afflictions. Now, Paul says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, which is an outrageous thing. Sometimes non-Christians will take this and say, I'm more than a conqueror over these things. And it's like, no, it's not. If you have cancer and you're not in Christ, all cancer does is kill you. It does not make you better. It does not make you stronger. You are not more than a conqueror because our afflictions have power over us. I cannot decide my afflictions. If I go to the doctor today and he says I have a disease, there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I could try to eat healthier. I could take medicine, but there's 
there's a limit to what I can do. But with Jesus, he says, no, you now have power over your afflictions in two ways. Number one, Jesus can make your problems go away. He he can make the affliction go away. And this is why we pray boldly for people. When they come and they're sick, we pray that God would take away the cancer. We pray that God would help them in their finances. We pray boldly over those things because Jesus can and does do miracles based upon the power and the influence he has with God the Father. But more often what Jesus does is he allows us to suffer through those things. And then what he does is he turns what looks to be the most evil thing that could happen to us into something that is glorious and good. And we don't always see the glorious and good on this side of eternity. But I promise you, a thousand years from now, we're all going to be setting and it's going to be a movie screen. And it's going to be showing us of all the things we thought were terrible in our life. And God's going to show off his glory to us and show us how he turned this thing that looked terrible into something that was immaculate. And we're going to go, God, you are so good. And ultimately, where do we see that? We see that on the cross. This moment where God in flesh is being killed looks like the worst time in human history. And what is God doing with it? He's doing something that is phenomenal, defeating sin and death itself. And this is what God does in our life, Paul tells us. He makes us better through our trials, and He gives Himself glory through our trials. That is very encouraging for me as a Christian, to know that when I'm going through pain, that pain is not useless pain. That affliction is being used for God's purposes and for my own good. Number two, as He gives us power over sin and Satan. You know, a a lot of times we think of Satan as kind of being Jesus' equal. They're fighting it out. They're battling. Uh, And that's just really not true. Jesus is Lord. And and Satan, if he wants to do anything to you, he has to go to Jesus first and ask if it's okay to do it. I like what John Piper says. Uh, Satan is still a snake, but he is a toothless snake. So when he bites you, it just kind of gums at you. You know, he can't actually hurt you. He can't kill you if you are a Christian. He can he has no authority over you. And in fact, this is kind of mind blowing. You, because of Jesus, have authority over him. Look at what uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's who you were. You had no power over your sin. Those things in your life that seem to control you, that you were powerless to those things. And in which you previously lived, walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. Who's that? That's Satan. We were under his power. But the spirit, the spirit now working in the disobedient. So he still has power over some people. Uh, verse 3. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Verse 4, the two best words in the Bible, I think, which are, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace, undeserved favor because of what Jesus has done for you. Verse 6, this is the mind blowing part. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus So that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You are seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Meaning Satan comes to you and he tries to control you. He cannot. You have authority over him. That is mind-blowing to me. Now, we can give in to the lies of Satan and we can believe it. but, But there is nothing in us that makes us give in to the temptations that Satan gives us. We have power over Him because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in His intercession. And the last one is power over death. 
And the other two, if those didn't excite you, this one ought to excite you. And if it does not excite you, I did the best that I could today. Power over death. Jesus comes and he is the only one who has power over death. None of us do. This is the ultimate enemy of humanity. There is nothing we can do and the grim reaper comes. And he says, I want this one. We're dead. We're, we're gone. There is nothing we can do to stop it. Our world tries to do three things. Uh, number one, our world tries to ignore it, uh, which is what a lot of us do. Because, you know, it's kind of depressing to think about your own death all the time. So I kind of get it. But we, we ignore it. You know, we, we watch funny TV shows. We keep the radio on. We're just constantly putting noise in our life to avoid our impending death. Just because we ignore it doesn't mean it's not coming. I am like a ship headed toward an iceberg. I will die. I am headed towards that. And by the way, sorry to crush your bubble, you will die also. And it might be tomorrow. But we tend to think, oh, it won't happen to me or it's a long ways off or somebody else gets a cancer diagnosis. We think that couldn't be us. It could very well be you. Even if you ignore it, the truth is death is coming for you. Uh, The second thing we try to do desperately as a society is we cover up death. This is why our society is obsessed with looking youthful. We hate gray hairs and, and we hate wrinkles. And so, you know, we'll take bath and, and baby seal blubber if we have to to keep the wrinkles away. I mean, there's just no limit to the diets we will undertake so we can keep looking young and youthful. But friends, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. You can put lipstick on your, on your body that is dying, but your body is still dying. There is no covering it up. At best, what our society can do, and this is number three, is we can prolong life. And this is good. We ought to do this. You know, death is not a good thing. It should not be something we aspire towards. Uh, You know, when I was a kid, I had a kind of a warped view of death. I thought, well, if Jesus is so good, why don't I just want to die right now? And it's like, no, death is not good. Life is good. That's what Jesus came to bring us. So it is good that we prolong life. But what I have a problem with is people who think science is going to be the answer to eternal life. There will never be an invention that will cause us to live forever. Because it doesn't matter how much you help somebody live a little bit longer. Eventually, they are going to die. Because there's not one of us, not a single one of us, who has authority over death. We are hopeless. Unless there's one who does have authority over death, who intercedes on our behalf. And the good news, friends, and the reason why you're all sitting here today, I hope... It's because you know the one who can intercede on our behalf. But we see this in Jesus' earthly ministry all throughout. He's raising people from the dead constantly. Uh, one of my favorite stories is in John chapter 11, when he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. He shows up and, and you know, they're all crying because Lazarus has been dead for several days. And he says, remove the stone. And the people are like, this is ridiculous. You know, he's been in there for many days. He probably stinks because he's decomposing. You know, Jesus, this is just, just, you know, walk away. Why are you doing this? And Jesus says, no, roll away the stone. So they roll away the stone. And I love what Jesus says. If you want to see the power of Jesus, all it takes is three words for him to make a dead man and a live man. It says, after he had said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus. Come out. And I've heard uh, commentators say the reason why Jesus said Lazarus come out is because if he would have just said come out, every tomb in the entire universe would have been emptied in that moment. And then this amazing thing happens. You know, it's one thing. If I go to the cemetery today and I say, come out of your tomb, you're going to think this guy's nuts because you know what's going to happen? Nothing. Because I have no authority over death. But verse 44, the dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Isn't that cool? Now, there's a cool dad joke I could give you here. Uh, it, It really works best on Easter. And that is simply if Lazarus was wrapped like a mummy, he probably hopped like a bunny. I think that's funny whether you guys like it or not. 
I'm trying to get this dad joke thing down. I've got four weeks till I'm a dad, so I've got to practice. But Jesus is the one who gives us authority. And ultimately, it's not in his, in his ministry that we see him raising life. It's in his resurrection. If you want to know how Jesus has power over death, it's not just because he rose other people from the dead. He rose himself from the dead. Death gave it its best shot. The Grim Reaper killed Jesus, man. He gave it its best shot. And Jesus said, that's all you got? I have authority over you. And I give that authority to my people. So that if I am in Christ, death no longer needs to be something I am afraid of. Because Jesus is interceding on my behalf. It's why the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You can't kill me. One day my body will be laid to rest. But I will not be laid to rest. And my body will not be laid to rest forever. Because when Jesus comes back, I'm going to get a new body. It's going to raise again. And I'm going to have a physical body in which I walk in this physical remade world. I love what D.L. Moody says. He's a, a pastor in the 1800s. And uh, he said this, he says, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That is all out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die, but that which is born of the Spirit will live forever. Friends, is that not some of the best news you've ever heard? You know, but give me some practical tips on you know, how I can love my wife better. Okay, that's fine to do those things. But Jesus came so that you might live forever. You know, this, this is the big thing. This is why theology should be something that excites us. Because we get to see how good our King is to us. Can you believe Jesus has been that good to you? I mean, when I think about my own sin and my own thoughts and my own heart, the things that I would never want you to even know, the things that come up in my mind, and I I think I don't deserve any of this. And yet Jesus continues to pour His lavish grace upon me. Why? Not because I'm good, but because He is good. He has power over my afflictions. He has power over sin and Satan. And He even has power over death itself. And He's given me that same power. Friends, I hope that stirs your affections. And Zach, if you guys want to go ahead and come up. Uh, I'm going to end with Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. It says, Now many have become Levitical priests. Because that's honestly what in this role Nehemiah is doing. The priest was to be the bridge between God and humans. The priest was the one who interceded on behalf of the people. Uh, and so that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's doing a priestly type role. Jesus, uh, one of his many roles is that he is a priest for us. It's why I'm not Father Blake. Uh, I'm just Pastor Blake. In fact, we're all priests in Christ Jesus. We all have access to God. We can all walk boldly into the throne room of God. My prayers don't get any better connection than your prayers. Because we actually have one high priest. And his name is Jesus. It says, now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. In other words, Nehemiah was a great interceder on behalf of God's people. But guess what happened to him? He died. He's dead. So when you die, you can no longer be the interceder for God's people. Jesus, however, is superior because he lives forever. Verse 24. But because he, being Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Since he always lives, he always lives. There is not one minute, one second, one moment, if you are in Christ Jesus, that Jesus is not interceding for you. (laughs) That should give you great encouragement. On your worst day, he is interceding for you at every moment. Since he always lives to intercede for them. So my question for you today 
Is, is he interceding for you? Are you a part of us? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you seen Jesus not as a, a cold kind of religious doctrine, but have you come to him in love with the person of Jesus, giving your life to him? And you say, like, how do I do that? Well, it's really simple. It's almost too simple. You just believe that it is true for you. That's all I have to do. That's all you have to do because it's grace. It's undeserved favor. Jesus is saying, here's a billion dollars. I'm ready to deposit it in your bank account. Just take it from me. And all we have to do is say, I believe that is true. And then we begin to live like it is true. And this is my word to some of you who are Christians. Are you living like this is true? Or do you live like Satan actually has power over you? Do you let those lies get to you? Do you live like death has no power over you? Or are you just like the rest of the world trying to ignore it and cover it up? Did you live like this is true for you? Do you live like Jesus is interceding for you? And if you do, for the first time, you say, Blake, I want that. I want, to, I want to believe in Jesus Christ. Your next step is to be baptized, to go public. That's how we tell the whole world, hey, it's no longer me living. It's the one who intercedes on my behalf who is living in me. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have an opportunity to do that. And so if you feel called to do that, do not leave this place without telling me or filling out a Connect card and making sure that we can do this. Do not wait. Christ is waiting for you. It's an open invitation. Life is not guaranteed. That's something that we often forget until moments wake us up to it. So do not wait any moment, friend. If you feel the need to come to Jesus, come to Him today. If you would, bow your heads. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for each of the people who are here today. I do not believe it is an accident. There are a lot of places people could be on Labor Day weekend. They could be at the lake or they could be at home sleeping in and nobody would judge them for it. And yet, God, for whatever reason, on this day they came. And it might be a mystery to me, but it's not to you. So, God, I pray that for those who are Christians, you would stir their affections for you. They begin to live like this is true. For those who maybe are not Christians, who have not believed this, they would come to you boldly. They would say, I want you, Jesus. I believe that this counts for me. They'd be baptized into all that you have for them. Father God, we love you and we praise you. It is in your name that we now sing. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing to Jesus. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.